All right. Um, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read the entire chapter, but our focus will be particularly on the last three verses, verses 18 through 20. Um, I jokingly said to Brian on Wednesday uh, that I was working on two sermons, and out of the two options, of course, what you're going to hear is one of those two, um, but I refer to it as my yearly sermon on the Great Commission, um, and that was the joke part, by the way. Uh, <laughs> in all seriousness, uh, this will be the fourth time that I have preached from this particular text at this church, and it will be the fifth overall in the last five years. That's pretty easy math. That averages out one a year. <laughs> okay. Um, the reason that I try to do that is because it's crucial for the mission of the church. In fact, it is the mission of the church. Uh, this text gives us our marching orders, so to speak. Uh, additionally, I hope it's going to serve as proof uh, against the widely held misconception that those holding to the doctrines of grace do not care about evangelizing. I have as someone who holds to the doctrines of grace preached on this text more times than any other text, and here I am doing it again, all right? God forbid that it would ever be so that we don't care about evangelizing. Uh, we should be the most zealous to evangelize, as we will see momentarily. Uh, but I, I want you to consider a few questions uh, as we move through the text. Okay, so before we read this, I want to ask you these questions. I want you to think about this. I want you to assess each individual in this room. I want you to assess where do you stand as an individual? Where do we stand as a church? Okay, but each question, think about both. Where are you as an individual? Where are we as a church? Okay, number one, what are we doing here? Why have we each of us chosen to be at this church this morning. Why do you come here every Sunday morning, not just this Sunday morning? Why do you come on Wednesday evenings? What's the point of all this? Number two, why are you part of particularly Sovereign Savior Church? Okay. There are several different churches in our area of the world. We live in the Bible Belt here, okay? <laughs> the reason it's called that. Um, <clears throat> you know, in fact, uh, I was driving yesterday uh, at a football game. And uh, so I, I was driving back from that football game. And my wife pointed out what I notice a lot in my travels because I work in Carroll County. The signs in Carroll County are, I think it's, Right there on the edge, maybe in Harrelson, it's right there. Um, but uh, we have a cowboy church, okay? We have a cowboy church just right down the road. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've got abundant options. I mean, for that matter, like, just walk over there. There's another one, right? We're next door to another church, okay? So with all the different options in the area, why are you a member here? What is it about here? Why are you here specifically, not just in church, but this church? Or 
those who are attending but they've not committed to membership yet, uh, why do you potentially wish to be part of this church? Why are you physically present here even if you're not a member? And then third, what are the goals that we are all wanting to accomplish here as a local church of Jesus Christ? What are, what are our goals here? And then finally, final question. What does God expect out of us as one of his local churches? Do our goals align with his? Okay. <clears throat> so primarily four questions. I know I stated those differently, but primarily four questions I want you to consider, okay? Now, uh, let's turn to the text. Again, we're going to read the entire chapter just so you make sure you have the context here, but we are particularly going to be looking at Verses 18 through 20, all right? So picking up in verse number one. Now after the Sabbath, for the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Something I want to point out real quick before we go to the next verse. This, this group that they're going to tell okay, is referred by the angels as his disciples. And by Jesus as his brothers. Just notice that. It's kind of an interesting thing when we get to the text we're actually going to be looking at. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The day that this was written and even to literally this day. <clears throat> now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. All right, here we go. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray now that you would help us to give full attention to exposition of this word. 
pray that you would guard my mind and my mouth from leading your people into error. Uh, I pray that you would guide all of our words and thoughts here by your spirit. You have promised us that your spirit will guide your church into all truth. And so we pray for that blessing now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as we just read, the background for this focal passage in verses 18 through 20 is that our Lord has just risen from the dead and is giving his final marching orders to his church before his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Context. Marching orders he gave them have been passed on to each generation of the church, and now they apply to us. So he directly gave it to the 11, but then they've passed it on all the way down to us here this morning. So this applies to us. And this is what is most often referred to as the Great Commission. The mission that we receive, the church, Jesus Christ has received from Jesus Christ. The first thing to notice from this passage is that our Lord will, not that he may, not that he might, our Lord will build his church. There is an exchange between Jesus and Peter that was recorded earlier in Matthew's gospel, where Peter first confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In fact, I think I preached on that a few months ago. I'm going to think about it. Uh, Jesus responded to Peter by saying, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That means... Jesus is working through his church to build his church. And the church is on offense against the kingdom of hell. Gates are a defensive mechanism, a defense mechanism that we're supposed to be storming. If they won't stand, that means that something's coming up against them, right? It's us. It's what we're supposed to be doing. And here we are guaranteed by our Lord that hell's gates cannot withstand uh, withstand our offensive assault. He's purposely speaking in military terms. Of course, this is a spiritual war. We're not literally storming literal gates. These are spiritual gates. Nevertheless, we are to be storming them. Hell cannot stop it. Jesus will build his church if the building is completed. We are not to be in our little holy huddle. Waiting on the Lord to return. Afraid of a world that will be overcome by our Lord. We need to remember who we serve. We serve, what's the name of this church? A sovereign savior, right? So back in our passage here in chapter 28, we see the basis for the command of the Great Commission and for the church's confidence is this, in the success of the Great Commission is the all-encompassing authority of King Jesus. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I'm going to point out the obvious right here. Um, or at least it should be obvious, but apparently it's not always obvious. <clears throat> all means all. All doesn't leave anything out. 
The Greek word translated as all is panta. The root word panta is pos. Thayer's Greek lexicon gives the following definitions for pos. Any and everyone. Any and every of every kind. The highest degree, the maximum, or the whole. Do you know what all that means? It means all. That's what it means. <laughs> like, I just told you that so you can see there's no way of getting out of this. Okay? Knowing the Greek is not really helping you there. The English means what it means. The Greek means what the English means. All means all. <clears throat> so when Jesus says all authority belongs to him, that is literally what he means. Therefore, we have every reason to be confident. The war was won right there. The battle was won right there that leads to the end of the war. We have every reason to be confident, not because we're anything special in ourselves. We all know we're not. But because we know the mission given to us by our Lord is given and will be successful on the basis of his all-encompassing authority. There is literally nothing, not even all the forces of hell, that can stop it. Because even hell's ability to hinder the progress of the church is only as much as the Lord Jesus will allow. What do you say to Pontius Pilate? You have no authority except what's given to you. This is the man who had the power to crucify him. And Jesus says, the only reason you have the power to crucify me is because my father gave you that. Do we think any less now that he's risen? <clears throat> this brings us to the next point of consideration. Where does Jesus say he has all authority? He says, in heaven and on earth. I'm afraid we often think of Christ's authority exclusively in heavenly terms. And yes, he is sovereign over heaven. That's correct to think of it in heavenly terms. We know he has ascended to the right hand of God, the seat of power in heaven. Scripture tells us that. That is where he is seated now and from where he presently reigns. He is bodily in heaven. We read of the heavenly worship directed toward Christ in Revelation chapter 5 verses 19 or excuse me verses 9 through 14 which says and they sang talking about the heavenly hosts and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal talking to Christ for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a wonderful picture of the heavenly worship directed toward Jesus Christ. But in the midst of that heavenly worship directed to Christ, did you catch what was said about those he has ransomed from every nation? They shall reign on the earth. How could that be? We look around at our present world. That seems far-fetched. It does not appear as if Christians reign here at all. But what did our Lord say of his authority when he gave his commission to his disciples? He said, it extends beyond heaven. Jesus has all authority on earth just as much as he has all authority in heaven. Think about this for a moment. This man with what might seem a minuscule following at the time, he's talking to his 11 disciples, okay? Like it was 12 and one betrayed him, okay? He's talking to his now 11, his diminished number, 11 disciples, okay? Um, so he's talking to his minuscule following, and this man was just murdered by the dominant religious authorities of the region, and the most powerful empire in the world, in the history of the world, to this point. And he has the audacity to say, not the Sanhedrin who condemned him, and not the Roman Empire who crucified him, but he himself has all authority on earth. As bad as we think our situation is, Consider how much worse the prospect must have looked for the church at this point in history. Like I said, we have now, our 12 is down to 11. We have 11 disciples. And he says, all authority in all the world is mine. <laughs> okay, Just think about that for a minute. Now compare that to what we have now, okay? We have, the church has spread all across the globe, and it's still spreading. Right? There's more than 11 disciples of Jesus Christ in this room. Okay, And this is a small church. There's more than 11 here in this room. Think about the world over. Okay, It seems bleak, I will agree, at times. Okay, we, We've got definite uh, uh, secularism is on the rise. This is one of, if not the greatest challenges the church has ever seen. We can admit all of those things, but we need to not lose sight of the fact that the gospel is still going to the nations. The church is still spreading. The church is still growing. Okay? So in comparison to when Jesus is saying these words to the eleven, really it's not as bad as we might think. Um, but if you think about their circumstance, why should Christ's hearers believe him when he says all authority belongs to him? There's 11 of us and some women. That's it. What do you mean you have all authority in earth? Well, first of all, there is this whole thing where he had just risen from the dead. Okay? 
I mean, that I think that's a pretty big one. Uh, re remember, they're talking to the resurrected Christ here. He's not merely saying he has power over death. He is displaying it in himself. The fact he is standing there talking to them is evidence enough. He has power over death. He has overcome death. He's defeated death. That alone probably is enough. Okay. This man defeated death. The Sanhedrin never defeated death. The Roman Empire, where's it at? It died. This man defeated death. <clears throat> he has life in himself, is what the Apostle John says. Um, there's also the fact that God the Father, at least twice prior to this, audibly spoke from heaven in front of other witnesses to declare that Jesus is his son in whom he is well pleased. Not to mention all the miracles Jesus performed before and after his crucifixion. We, uh, we read this text last Wednesday. And I, what, before I read it again, I just want to tell you guys, because um, it kind of hit me Wednesday, and I don't know if you could see it in me or not, but I'm telling you it did. Sometimes when you read a text by yourself, and then you read it together with the, God's people, it just kind of hits different. And that happened to me Wednesday. I've read that passage I don't know how many times, but it just hit me different when I was with you all. Um, so that happens sometimes. And I think that it's one of the reasons we need to publicly read together. Um, but anyway, that's just a little side note. <clears throat> we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 20 through 28 says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, and he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Every, all, same thing. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. You keep noticing this word, all uh, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That word all is important. Verses 20 through 22 are a promise to us who are in Christ that just as he was raised from the dead, so shall we be raised in like manner. Notice what happens in verses 24 through 26. Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father at the end, like the end, very, very end. What happens in the lead up to the end, though? That's where we're at now, right? We're in the lead up to the end. We're after Christ's resurrection, but we're not to the final uh, judgment yet. What happens there? Jesus 
destroys every rule, authority, and power. For he must reign, present tense, presently reign, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Future. We are not to the end yet. Jesus has already been given all authority in heaven and on earth, presently. The already not yet concept that we often talk about. <clears throat> That's what both of these passages say. Uh, and this passage in 1 Corinthians says a bit more. Jesus is going to reign as he defeats all his enemies and until he defeats all his enemies. It's a process. So as opposed to what probably the majority teaching, uh, at least in the United States, is uh, it's not a cataclysmic all at once happening, right? It's a process. It happens in time. <clears throat> it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So not even death can stop our sovereign Savior. All means all. And I suppose that would be obvious at this point because he is risen. Like when he, he's having this conversation with the disciples, he's already defeated death. He's, he's risen. <clears throat> For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. In some, Jesus is presently reigning over earth from heaven. Bodily seated in heaven, but reigning over earth. He is conquering his enemies, even now as we speak. You just heard an example of what Brian read. Radical Muslim extremist comes to Christ. <clears throat> Please note two things from this. Number one, Jesus... And no one else is the builder of his church who will overcome all his enemies. Two, his authority, Jesus's authority, is the basis for our confidence that he will indeed build it. So that was the first verse. Now looking at verse 19. We see the means by which Christ has chosen to build his church. Jesus does not just speak the church into existence. Now, certainly he could, but he doesn't. He's chosen not to. He has all authority. He can do that. Instead, he has blessed us to be his means or his building tools, if you will. He's chosen to do it by process. Christ's chosen means for building his church is the Holy Spirit-led process of making disciples through his disciples of whom the church already consists. Let me repeat that in case you're a note-taker. Christ's chosen means for building his church is the Holy Spirit-led process of making disciples through his disciples of whom the church already consists. He's already got 11 disciples here, right? He's commissioning them to go make more. And this is just a self-repeating process, okay? They make more, and then the ones they made make more, and then the ones they made make more, and all the way down to us. 
<clears throat> Remember the context of our passage is that our risen Lord is meeting with his disciples, the eleven. These men were specifically chosen by Jesus to be the foundation of his church. He had spent the better part of his earthly ministry teaching and revealing to them correct doctrine and the fruit that it bears. It is faith within us, sanctification within us, good works that we do as a result of that, all of those things. Good works which glorify the Father. Now, he was telling them, go and do likewise. Making new disciples the same way he had made disciples out of them. Now consider for a moment who these people, these 11 disciples, who were they? Prior to being chosen by Christ, none of these men had any special theological training as far as we are aware. None of them were Pharisees, none of them were Sadducees, none of them were scribes, lawyers, priests, or any other thing that would afford them special theological training or even societal status. From a human perspective, they were not unique or special in any way. They were just common guys. Ordinary men. Keep that in mind. Anytime you're tempted to say, I'm not qualified to make disciples. Neither were the eleven. Neither was Peter. Neither was John. Or any of the others. If Jesus has called you to be his disciple, I assure you, he has qualified you to make disciples. Now, this is not to say we're all equally able and qualified in the sense of ability, right? That's not what I'm saying. A person who has been a convert for 40 years and received proper biblical training over that time is probably going to have more ability than a new convert. You should. If you've been a convert for 40 years, years, a disciple of Jesus Christ for 40 years, and you don't know how to make new disciples, that's shameful somewhere. It may not be on you. It may be the people that were teaching you. But somewhere, somebody ought to be ashamed of themselves. But for a new convert, okay, fine. You're a new convert. We have to teach you some of these things. You, you don't just know them by osmosis. We have the word. We have teachers for a reason. Um, God uses means to achieve his ends. That's his choice. Um, however, even a new convert can share the gospel that saved them, okay? Bare minimum, share your testimony. This is what Jesus did for me. Can't tell you all of the great theological terms and all of the, you know, the, the, exactly how it works and everything, but I can tell you what Jesus did for me. I can tell you to trust in him. Simple, basic gospel presentation. Even a new convert can do that. We all have a testimony about how God has saved us. In fact, our testimony may even be helpful when we're no longer new disciples. When you are 40 years converted, or however long. But still relevant, right? Because that's a personal testimony. That's like, that's what he's done for me. I know this. He did it for me. <clears throat> now, let me pose another question to you. Clearly, we are being commanded here to make new disciples. That's obvious. It may be helpful to define what is a disciple. 
that word disciple gets thrown around a lot in the church context because, you know, we have our church in the East language that we, yeah, disciple is one of those words. It just gets kind of bandied about and we never really define it. So what's the definition of it? Uh, the most helpful definition that I have found was that a disciple is, quote, a person who is a pupil or an adherent of the doctrines of another or a follower, end quote. So I don't care where you're at in the church hierarchy. If you're a disciple, you're not in charge. You're a follower. You're a pupil, right? That's what a disciple is. I believe that uh, that definition I just read, I believe that captures the idea perfectly. That's what's being put forth here. <clears throat> um, so it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or song leader. or It doesn't matter, teacher. You are ultimately still a follower. Jesus is the one who has all authority. So this could create humility and thankfulness. Being a disciple of Jesus means that we are pupils that are ever learning about our Lord and his commandments in order that we may better know, love, and obey him. It's not simply about knowledge. It's about the fruit brought about by that knowledge as well. Judas had the knowledge, but he didn't have the fruit brought about by it. Being a good disciple means you look like one you're being discipled by. Good, a good student looks like the teacher. Put it in simple terms, it means we learn to become more and more like Jesus. We love him and we come to love like him. And that causes us, as John put it, to walk as he walked. So, we know what a disciple is. We know that as disciples, we are to be making other disciples on the basis of Jesus' all-encompassing authority. Now, how are we to go about doing that practically? The command requires that we first go. Part of disciple-making is seeking out people to be discipled. Because, again, this is obvious. If you're going to make disciples, you got to have people to be disciples. Right? Common sense, right? <clears throat> there will be times we can find the unconverted in the church setting where they come to us. Thank God for those opportunities. That's That should be the easiest ones because they're not even going to have to do that in pairs or whatever. That, all of us together. Show the love of Christ to this person who has come to us. And it is important that we do everything we can to disciple such people. That's not enough to satisfy the explicit command of our Lord here. That's not what he's talking about here. Or at least primarily not what he's talking about here. We are commanded to go. Jesus did not simply say we are to disciple the religious or the churchgoers. He said we are to disciple the nations. That means every person we come across is at least a potential disciple from our perspective and should be treated as such. 
yeah, even that uh, even that rude cashier, the terrible waitress, or that jerk of a boss you've got, or yeah, every single one of them is a potential disciple of Jesus Christ. Or heck, I'll even say this, even that politician you hate, because he wants to put forward uh, killing babies as a virtuous thing, and, and he wants to say that it's okay for uh, sexual perversion to sweep across the land. Even that guy or girl is a potential disciple of Jesus Christ from our perspective. Again, Brian just read about an extremist Muslim coming to faith in Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, If God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will, and when whosoever will believes, I know he is elect. Or he's one of the elect, end quote. God did not reveal this information to us. God knows those whom he has chosen from eternity to conform to the image of Jesus Christ, but we don't, okay? And uh, Jesus did not say that since he knows and we don't, we can just sit around and wait for him to do his thing. Uh, no, in fact, he said the opposite. We are his chosen means for spreading the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. He told us to go. It is the proclamation of the gospel which calls people, particularly God's people, into the kingdom. We are individually and collectively responsible for verbally sharing the gospel, verbally sharing the gospel, and lovingly calling people to repentance and faith. And the reason I say verbally is because I've heard over and over and over and over again professing Christians saying things like, well, I can just live out my faith before them and that will be a testimony to them and they'll come to know the Lord because I'm living a good life in front of them. Or maybe you've heard this atrocity of a saying. Uh, Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. I hear that quoted a lot. And frustrating to me that they think it's profound. And profound nonsense is what it is. <clears throat> it is important that we live holy lives. And that we love our neighbor with our actions. But that's not going to save anybody not. We are called to do those things. I'm not saying that just because it doesn't save somebody, we're off the hook for that. No, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yes, we should do those things. That's not, that's not going to save anybody. Just Scripture says the gospel, not our holy lives. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is a message. How do you communicate a message without words? Elsewhere, Scripture says, faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. That is, the nations must hear the word of Christ for them to ever have faith in Christ. Yeah, we should live holy lives. Part of those holy lives should be to share the gospel with people who are lost and they're going to hell if we don't. <clears throat> We, the church, have been tasked 
first of all, to go into the world to verbally share the gospel of Jesus Christ. On an individual level, this means several things. First, men. We should be discipling our families. You don't even have to go for that one. The only place you got to go to do that properly is to church. Come to church. This is in our own homes. This should be our top priority in life. Men, what could be more important than the spiritual well-being of your wife and your children? As far as your responsibilities are concerned, what could be more important than that? What could be more important than discipling those placed under your authority? Men, your wives, and your children. What could be more important than teaching them to pray and read and know the scripture and seek God in every part of their lives? God has uniquely placed us, chosen us, just as he chose his disciples, men. Just as he chose the apostles, he chose us to be in a position of authority over our households. But he had a reason for that. It wasn't because we're great, brilliant, geniuses. It's definitely not it. He put us in that position for the purpose of discipling our families. Protect our families. Part of protecting them is protecting them from demonic teaching. In fact, I would say that's probably the biggest part of protecting. <clears throat> regarding discipleship it is our primary responsibility to mold the hearts and minds of our children and to lead and protect our wives from the lies and attacks of Satan and the world we must be certain our families know the truth and see it modeled in our lives gotta walk it not just talk it God help us. Ultimately, we know hearts are only renewed by the Holy Spirit. We cannot save our children, our wives, or even ourselves. But it's not what we're called to do, is it? We're called to simply teach and obey scriptures. Remember what I said earlier. Discipleship is a Holy Spirit-led process. You, men, are the tool that God is using. It's trust in him to do his work and be faithful to do yours. But the big roles husbands and fathers play in the lives of their families does not get women off the hook. No. While wives are to be biblically submissive to their husbands, that does not mean they are never to serve as a corrective to their husbands. I've been at this church longer than most of the people here today. I can say this with absolute confidence. I know every one of you, every one of you, men, none of the men in this room, including myself, are perfect. I see wives shaking their head. No, no, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. No, we're not. None of us are. I'm not perfect. <clears throat> we need, by the way, that shows we're imperfect. We have needs. 
We need encouragement. And we need submissive correction at times. Women, you play a big role in the spiritual well-being of your husbands and therefore your households. You hold a lot of power in that you are able to either encourage or discourage your husbands, particularly in the things of God. You can help determine what sort of spiritual leader of the household he becomes. Are you biblically submissive or do you give him a hard time about it? Do you nag at him for his flaws? Now, we all know we got him, okay? How do you deal with his flaws? Do you nag at him for his flaws or do you genuinely encourage him to repent and follow the Savior? Okay, I'm not telling you to overlook his flaws. Okay, I'm not saying that. He needs you to point them out. But he needs you to do it in a, an encouraging way. Okay? Proverbs 12.4 says this, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So, ladies, ask yourselves which side of that statement describes you. I'm not saying, I'm telling you to do a self-assessment. I'm also not telling your husband to do an assessment because they'll get in trouble. No, I, I'm telling you do a self-assessment. Where do you stand on that? Likewise, mothers share in fathers' responsibility to disciple their children. Think of Timothy and the importance of his mother and grandmother's instruction. Nowhere in that passage it talks about Timothy's instruction does it mention any man at all. Just his grandmother and his mother. I've said it before and I'll say it until I die that the influence of several women in my life, and the foremost being my own mother, played a huge role in me saving and coming to Christ. My mother read the Bible to me from the time I was born. She modeled, and she still models, biblical submission as a wife to my father. And she practiced and still practices biblical motherhood toward my sister and myself. And now this awesome thing has happened, right, to watch my wife do those things for my children and me. And I'm sure that's many. It's true for many of you. <clears throat> Experience of several here, I'm sure. But that's what you do if you just stay. We're talking about going, right? Discipleship does not stop with the family or within the walls of the church. The command is to go. So how do we reach the lost out there, outside the church walls? A lot of times, it's very simple. It just means talk to people terrifying thing that introverts like me don't like to do. Talk to people. Talk to your co-workers, your friends, your family, people that, well, we ask prayer requests commonly, right? Our unsaved loved ones. Talking to our unsaved loved ones? <clears throat> talk to whoever you have the opportunity to talk to. Talk to the person you're in line behind at Walmart. I mean, talk to anybody. Ask them. Ask them about Jesus. Ask them who he is. What does he mean to them? Opinions abound about Jesus. 
so many opinions and so so many different ways that people look at Jesus, but there's only one true Jesus and there's only one right way. Scripture tells us what that is. See, he who has all authority gets to define what the right way to look at himself is. <clears throat> I will almost promise you some of these conversations are going to be uncomfortable. But, so what? After the, uh, after the story that Brian read to us this morning about that wonderful Christian lady, her arm was broken by this monstrous man. And she looks up to him, pronounces a blessing on him, and he comes to Christ. We're going to worry about the conversation's not comfortable. No. No. We've not been called to a life of comfort, but love and obedience. And it isn't a little discomfort. Isn't that worth the eternal souls of the people we're talking to? These people really are going to go to hell if they don't hear the gospel. You understand that. <clears throat> Usually, people are actually willing to talk. Some of them not. Some are introverts, but, you know, if you get people talking about themselves and what they think, people are naturally selfish. They like to talk about what they think. <clears throat> so, what's our task? Listen. A big part of what we're going to need to do is listen. Probably not going to take you long to determine where they're going to be coming from and the best way that you can share the gospel with them. Do they have a biblical background? Can you start from that? Or are they completely ignorant? Or, uh, I mean, you're going to learn these things by talking to people. And when we get to that point, it's important that we remember this. First, we need to make it clear to them they have a need for the gospel. Okay? It's possible you're going to come across people that really are already converted. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about anybody else. Them and God are not good. That's, an, that's often something I hear. Me and God have an understanding. Me and God are good. Okay. How do you know that? What makes you and God good? In fact, what makes you good at all? That's where you need to start. <clears throat> You need to destroy that conception by using God's law to show them, no, actually, you are a wretched sinner, and apart from Jesus Christ, you're never going to be good with God. So first law, then gospel, okay? Now, collectively, the local church should be gathering together on the Lord's Day to worship by singing His praises, reading and expositing Scripture, and practicing the ordinances of the New Covenant church is the new covenant people, right? We should be discipling each other. We are to love each other as Jesus loves us. That, that means really investing in each other's lives. It should not be the case that we come here on Sunday, have a nice conversation, casual conversations with each other, and then bid each other farewell until next week. No clue what's going on in each other's lives whatsoever. By the way, that means also being vulnerable enough to share what's going on in your life. 
somebody doesn't know because you didn't tell them, that's your fault. They don't know because they didn't ask, that's their fault. The nature of conversations. Um, <clears throat> we must have a deep concern for what is going on in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must, it's imperative. Listen to how biblical love is described. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There's that all word again. Elsewhere it says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. See, part of true love is also hate. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Like that dear saint we just read about. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give fault to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Biblical love involves action. It's not just a nice little ooey-gooey feeling in our bosom, right? It's the burning in the bosom, the way that the uh, Mormons would put it. <clears throat> it's more than that. I'm not saying that's not involved, but I am saying it's more than that. Biblical love involves action. We're called to teach, encourage, support, rejoice, mourn, and even lovingly rebuke each other. And to lovingly receive rebuke. This is all part of discipling and being discipled. And I'll say this. I do believe that's happening here. I really do. Um, more than any other church I've ever been associated with, I do believe the people at Sovereign Savior Church love Jesus and love each other. I do mean that. I'm not saying that so your head will swell up, but I am saying that because I hope it's an encouragement to you. I was a pastor's son, and I've been to a lot of churches, okay? So, for me to say that is a very high compliment, and I want you to know I'm thankful for that. But, we need to ensure we don't become complacent in that, right? It should be an ongoing thing, and from what I've seen since I've been here, I trust that it will. I really do. Now, <clears throat> we turn our attention to how we disciple the nations collectively as a local church. The Great Commission means reaching out to the community. Local churches need to do things which afford them the opportunity to talk to the people in the community, get an idea of where they are, and how best to share the gospel with them. Basically, what I was telling you to do on an individual level, we need to do it together also. 
But in doing so, we need to be careful not to fall into a sinker-sensitive model of evangelism. What I mean by that, we do not simply want to give people entertainment or trinkets on their way to hell. We are not seeking what will please them. They are sinners. Okay, The way that uh, my brother Jason puts it, everybody's got a chooser, but their chooser's broken. Okay, they're not, we are not appealing to their chooser, all right? We are appealing to the gospel. Um, we need to keep in mind that community engagement is a must. It is a directive from our Lord, but we must be engaging the community specifically with the gospel. That said, here's my commercial, okay? That said, we have a fantastic opportunity to meet some people, hand out some tracks, and hopefully... Share the gospel next month. Jason posted on the Facebook page that we have the opportunity to participate in the Halloween Festival downtown Bremen, October 31st, 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock. We were able to do this last year. I was there. Jason was there. There's some other folks there. Uh, we were able to do this last year. We had a great time. I will say I hope we prepare better than we did last year. Because we kind of had to make shift some things. But hey, we pulled it off, all right? Um, but that being said, we could really use some help. Okay, we did not have enough people last year. We need more people. So if you're able to kind of get loose for that, possibly participate in that, please do. Here's an opportunity to do the very thing we're talking about, okay? All right, that's the end of my little commercial. Now, uh, we've seen what a disciple is and that we are to be making them on the basis of Christ's authority. Who does Jesus say we are to disciple? The nations. He says, all the nations, to be more specific. <clears throat> Not say to disciple a tiny portion of the population in each nation. No. He said to disciple the nations. In Psalm 2, 8 through 9, we just read it a little while ago. God the Father says to God the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you really think Jesus is going to refuse to ask the Father for his inheritance? Of course not. And does that sound like a tiny sliver within each nation? Is that what's being offered to Christ? Of course not. The ends of the earth? Come on, that's all. <clears throat> does it sound like a tiny sliver within each nation? No. Remember, we went over the Greek word for all when referring to Christ's power. Well, the exact same word is used to describe how much of the nations are be are to be discipled. All. It's the same Greek word. It's the same English word. And it still means the same thing. All. All means all. Jesus is working through us to disciple all the nations. And he who has all authority in heaven and on earth will certainly accomplish it. He will receive that which his father has promised. Do we really think he commissions his church knowing it will fail? 
on the basis of my all-encompassing authority, go out and have a failing mission. Does that make sense? Of course not. We know what a disciple is. We're tasked to make disciples of all the nations. We're to do it on the basis of Christ's all-encompassing authority. It's supposed to be all of the nations. How then? We're getting to the end here. How then do we make disciples of the nations? We kind of talked around this. Talked around this. Now, what does the text practically say we are to do? According to the text, we disciple them by baptizing them and then teaching them to observe all Christ's commandments. <clears throat> this is how Jesus discipled his apostles. While scripture does not explicitly say that any of the apostles were baptized, it is reasonable to conclude they were. It does not make much sense for Jesus to give this method of discipleship to his disciples if they were not themselves baptized and taught obedience. Just seems logical, even though there's no uh, recording of any of the apostles being baptized. I just think it's obvious they were. In John's gospel, we see the apostles were already baptizing new disciples during Jesus's earthly ministry. We know that they baptized, and it makes perfect sense that they themselves were baptized. And in my opinion, which, you know, means it could be wrong. This is my opinion. This is not scripture. So, you know, I'm, I'm not infallible. Could be wrong. But in my opinion, Jesus probably baptized the 12, and then they baptized afterward. Because we see in that passage the apostles were baptizing new disciples, but not Jesus himself. That's what I think happened. Certainly there are other possibilities. Maybe they baptized each other. <clears throat> the point is that they would have been baptized and taught obedience to our Lord's commands. And it is reasonable to conclude the eleven were baptized at least by the time of Pentecost because Peter is calling people to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins there, right? So we know from Scripture they had been taught Christ's commandments, and we see in the remainder of the New Testament that the 11 plus Matthias plus Paul used the same discipleship method. Be baptized, live obediently. And so it has been this way in the church and will be until our Lord returns. Since this is the method, let's briefly talk about baptism. I do hope to get a little more in-depth on Wednesday. But let's briefly talk about baptism. What is baptism? According to our confession, quote, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to those baptized that is a sign of their fellowship with him and his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life, unquote. Baptism is absolutely necessary because entry into the visible community of disciples is biblically impossible without this sign of death to self and life in Christ. The concept of an unbaptized disciple is foreign to the New Testament. There are no lone disciples. 
all are called into Christ's body, the church. And all must obey this first ordinance to gain entry into the visible church. Think about this for a minute. And I've had conversations with people like this and still to this day don't understand. Think about this for a moment. <clears throat> Why would a professing believer refuse baptism? You're saying you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but then you're going to turn around and say that you're going to disobey the very first thing he tells you to do as his disciple. Really? How does that make any sense? Are you really a disciple then? Disciples look like teacher. Baptism however, is just the beginning of discipleship. Disciples spend the remainder of their lives learning and applying the doctrines and commandments of Christ. And this is why doctrinal instruction is so important in the church. That's the second thing he says. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. We learn correct doctrine from Scripture and according to our confession, Scripture alone is the final authority for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, human teachings, and individual interpretations. God's commandments are here in Scripture. The apostles wrote it down for us. So they were obedient. What we're reading from. What we believe determines how we live. Consider the words of Deuteronomy 27:26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by saying them, no, by verbally affirming them, no, by intellectually affirming them, no. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Simply saying you believe something does not confirm you believe something. You confirm it by the way you live. Now, applying this principle to our text in Matthew, saying you are a disciple of Christ is one thing, but you show you are a disciple of Christ by keeping his commandments. In another place, Jesus actually said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Correct doctrine should lead to holy living. Disciples of Christ do not merely intellectually affirm the doctrines of Christ. They obey and teach them to others. How do we know? That's, that's the commission. So how do we know we have successfully discipled the nations? When can we look and say, okay, mission accomplished? Simple. We'll know mission accomplished when Jesus returns. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he starts with the encouragement on the basis of my authority, go do this. And he finishes with more encouragement. I'm with you as you do this. <clears throat> so we will know we have completed our mission when he returns. And we will know we have not completed it even a moment sooner. Something to bear in mind. He will not return a single second before all his chosen disciples have been brought into his church.
Or, as was said before, he will not stop building until the building is completed. He will not return to an incompleted church. He will finish it, and until that time, our mission continues, and we should busily be about the business of discipling the nations, all of the nations. So in closing, everybody has a sigh of relief in closing. I'm going to ask these questions again. What are we doing here? Why are each one of us part of Sovereign Savior Church, or perhaps considering becoming part of Sovereign Savior Church? What are the goals that we should be trying to accomplish as a local church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do our goals and actions line up with God's goals for His church? Are we obediently fulfilling our Lord's great commission? May the Lord grant that we would have an earnest desire to see the nations turn to Christ. And may he grant that we would be bold enough to act on it. Pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to use it since you have given it to us, and you've given it to us in our language, and what a blessing that is. We take it for granted, but it's really not been the case for the majority of the history of the church, that everyday believers have it, so help us to not take that for granted. Help us also to obey those things we read. <clears throat> not that we earn a right standing with you by our obedience, no. Rather, help us to obey because we have a right standing through the righteousness of Christ. As his disciples, help us to have an earnest love and desire for our neighbor. To warn them of the wrath to come. Warn them to flee from that wrath. Now. Help it not be lost in our minds and our hearts. That if we do not obey this, people really will go to hell for our disobedience. Because yes, you have ordained from all eternity those who will come to know you through Christ. But you have also ordained the means. You have spoken to us about how if this, then that would have happened. To help us to be obedient. And it is in the name of our Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.